Thank you, Paul. It's Communion Sunday, very special for us as a congregation, and appropriate that we should consider God's Word before we do come to the table. Um, I will make an administrative note that the, uh, there's a little typo. The sub-points for the first main point were from last week and somehow got in for this week, so you may want to take a pencil out and write them down as, as we do come to them in the order of, of our message. Uh, you know, everything we do has significance. The songs we sang earlier today uh, are rife with biblical motifs. Um, I will follow. Where you move, I'll move. Where you stay, I'll stay refers to the pillar of cloud and to Jesus tabernacling among us and his disciples following with him that they might be with him. He'd chosen them. And then we sang the... Uh, last song, How He Loves Us. And it really, the motif of the hurricane comes right out of Psalm 29. Again, it ends with a picture of the shalom of the temple of God, meaning ultimately where the worship of God is embodied by the presence of God, and that ultimately is Jesus Christ. There is peace that pushes out every other turmoil. Think about the songs that we sing. It's not just the ancient hymns that have the biblical message. This morning, I would like for us to turn to Titus chapter 2. And I'll be reading the, the chapter. It's only 15 verses. And then we'll uh, focus especially on verses 11 through 14. Here, what God had to say to a young man named Titus, who was part of his church planting team, left behind uh, to complete the work of organizing the churches in, in Crete. Here's God's word through Paul. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. To try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and 
worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Thus far in God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we stand trembling before you this morning. We know we're accepted in Christ and we're so aware of our own continual shortcomings. But we are yours and we want more and more for you to have your full way in our lives and to refine out from us those things that are stains on the honor of our Savior. For we love him and we would be like him and we would that the world would see that we have been with Jesus. So do business with my soul, with our souls this morning. I pray it in the majestic and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. He was a young man, quite an athlete, and suddenly struck down in his prime. He had a particularly uh, dangerous form of cancer he was diagnosed with. Uh, no one expected that he would live. He had, however, determination. And he was determined that he would fight it and beat it, and fight it he did. And he continued with his athletic program and began to resume cycling. That was his sport. And uh, began to excel in it. And the world took note. He was picked as the uh, United States Postal Service uh, captain of their team and their, their poster boy, if you will, for what it, what it stood to be an American, someone who could come from behind all obstacles and overcome. And he won again and again the uh, Tour de France and other of, of great uh, endurance cycling feats. And he did so by a wide margin. It seemed he'd become almost superhuman. And then, of course, we heard the news. And finally, after denying many allegations, he confessed on television, public television, that he had taken performance-enhancing drugs, which disqualified him. He was doing it for some time. He had deceived the nation, those who had sponsored him, all the young boys and girls who were, who were holding him up as an image to be imitated. You know of whom I speak. That's sad. Someone given a new life and they seem to thrive in it and then they, as it were, toss it away. It's gone. Scripture says that that's not how our lives should end. We've been given a new life. And our life is not to end in despair. Our life is not to end in tragic 
disobedience and lostness. Our lives are to be transformed. That's the whole theme of the little epistle or letter of Paul to, the, to Titus. It occurs in every chapter. That God's people have been redeemed at a price. That we're to be different because he's redeemed us unto a purpose that he will fulfill by his grace in our lives. So I'd like to talk this morning, first of all, about the price and then the purpose of our redemption, which together establish the important precept that believers in Jesus Christ live out God's grace in the present age. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ live out God's grace in the present age. First, let's consider the price. Believers live between the coming and the coming again of Christ. Verse 11, Paul says that grace has appeared. He's talking about the incarnation, the ministry, the birth, uh, ministry, uh, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ has appeared. Verse 13, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ then is also the hope to which we look forward. We are between the coming and the coming again of Christ. The Lord's table before us is that of which Jesus said that we show forth the Lord's death. That's past, it's done. Until he comes, that's future coming in the eschaton, the final day. You see, we're motivated by the confident hope in Christ's return. Verse 13, he calls it the blessed hope. Motivated by a confident hope in Christ's return. A blessed hope. Now, I have never run a marathon. Confession. Always wanted to. I won't now, but got close to it one time and had a little interaction with my better half who didn't like me practicing on the highways of Whidbey Island and that put aid to that. So, <laughs> so I'll never do it. But I did get a chance to do a half marathon several times. And, uh, and that was enough to show me that it's important that when you run an endurance type of a, a trail, and by the way, Paul compares the Christian life time and again to a runner running a race, that it's important that we really believe there's a finish line. <laughs> Can you imagine if we didn't think there was a finish line? This goes on forever. How in the world would you motivate yourself? There is a finish line. Paul calls it a blessed finish line. The hope. Not just, well, maybe there's a finish line. I hope there's a finish line. No, no, no. That's not what Paul means. It's a blessed hope. A confident expectation that you're looking forward to. To, that to which you are pressing on. And we live then in continual dependence upon God's grace. That's the second sub-point. We live in continual dependence upon God's grace. Verse 11, the grace of God that brings salvation. And I never tire of saying that the Bible teaches that grace is not simply a whim. Grace is God's unmerited favor to those who don't deserve it. Never have, don't now, never will of ourselves. And is conferred upon us because of his love for us in his son. 
And when he said at his son's baptism, public baptism at the beginning of his ministry, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And his son, as it were, receiving the Spirit of God upon him in the form of a dove. You remember the story of Jesus' baptism? That Jesus is Israel. Jesus is the covenant people of God. Jesus is the remnant, capital R, outside of whom no one stands, because there is none righteous. No, not even one. And we can't come to the table of the Lord today thinking that oh, we deserve to be here. Because if you do, that's the first warning sign that you don't. The table, as we shall say later on, as we mark it out, is not for those who think they're good enough in themselves, but for those who know they are not, but that Jesus is and their hope is in him. And they understand that God has embraced them with his love in the beloved. A phrase, in the beloved, Paul uses again and again and again. He doesn't let us go. His love pursues. I'm writing a, a book on, I hope I'll eventually finish it, on Jonah. Uh, I tell people it's sort of autobiographical. It's really not. But, <laughs> but I identify with Jonah. I really do. I'm not just because I, uh, as it were, uh, ran from a godly home and joined the Navy and went out to sea. I mean, that's true. <laughs> so, did John, so did John Newton, as we shall see. But, um, but the point is that uh, wherever I went, God pursued me. You see, if we're God's child, he doesn't let us go. There's a confidence we can have in that. He may chasten us as he pursues us, but he doesn't smash us or throw us away. He chastens us out of love to bring us back to himself and to conform us to a glorious purpose, and that's conformity to the image of his son. Ah, that's important. But you see, it all is of grace from first to last. I, I remember at the end of my, uh, oh gosh, this was a year after Bill Tippins finished uh, Plebe's summer at uh, United States Naval Academy. I had to do mine, and I was a year behind him. And, and uh, Plebe's summer was, I'd never been through anything in my life like it. Now others have since, but, uh, and everybody who finishes Plebe year always says mine was the last Plebe year, you know. And, Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but, but it seems like it because it's always harder when you're the one going through it. Oh, man, that was tough. But at the end, at the end was parents' weekend, but I didn't have that privilege. You could go out in town for the first time. You weren't incarcerated anymore just for a few hours to have lunch with your parents. But my parents lived in Colorado, Annapolis, Maryland, a little too far. They couldn't be there. My roommate was from New York. His mother was a widow. He was an only child. She was driving down to be with him, and they looked forward to having that time together. Mother and son. She was so proud. He'd finished bleep summer. Started now, the, about to start the 
academic year for the first time, four years of that. And um, he said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I guess I'll just eat down in the mess hall and spend the afternoon reading or walking around the yard. We had liberty and uh, yard liberty. <laughs> oh, what a thing to look forward to. Bill knows. <laughs> and uh, stribbling walk back and forth. Uh, but he said, well, Sam, why don't you join us? I said, what? He said, yeah. My mom will adopt you for the day. She'll take us both out as her sons. I said, well, that's really, I wouldn't want to crash the, oh, no, don't be silly. And so his mother took the two of us out in town a little ways, not too far, to a walking distance, a nice little restaurant. And we sat down, and, and I had saved all that plebe summer. We were paid the princely sum of $15 a month out of which came all of our necessities, plus big sheets we had to buy because we kept going through our sheets, having to make big uh, pep rally posters out of them. Ugh. And every time we did that, I thought, oh, what a waste. Sorry, but I did. And uh, I guess I wasn't a peppy guy. And, uh, uh, so, but I had managed to scrimp together about, over the course of the summer, about $20 almost. And I hoped that that would cover it. And I sat down. And um, they ordered uh, filet mignon. And I was embarrassed. I didn't know if I could afford that. But maybe I could. I just figured, oh yes, if I just have water and no dessert, nothing on the side. So that's what I did. Did the calculation. I, I tried to figure out the state tax. I was never sure of that. Seeing. And um, we had the meal together. It was Wonderful time. She was so nice to me. And then at the end, she reached over to pick up the tab. And I tried to stop her and say, oh no, let me, let me contribute. I'll take care of mine. She looked shocked. And I'll never, ever forget the hurt look in my roommate's eyes. He said, Sam, you don't get it. You're our guest. You're our family today. You can't pay for it. And I began to understand something in that instant, a little late. I realized that his time with his mother was precious and hers with him. They wouldn't sell it for anything. They wouldn't part with it for money. It wasn't about money. It's about the fact that they cared for each other. And because of that care for each other, they cared for me. For me. It was grace. Another lesson that God was teaching his young Jonah. And it started already. Plebe summer. Grace. Have you understood that when our... Our relationship with God in Christ started, it was grace, but do you understand that what continues in the Christian life is also grace? And when we finish our life here, this side of glory, that too will be finished by grace from beginning to end. And that brings us to the purpose. We've spoken of price. There's the purpose. The believers are redeemed for a purpose. 
verse 14, who gave himself, Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us. To redeem us what? From, he says, and he goes on to say, and to, or in order to. There's a purpose. He redeemed us. That is, he gave his life upon the cross for wicked people to pay the penalty our sins deserved in the eyes of the justice of Almighty, Holy God, and satisfied it entirely because he loved us and went to the death for us, went through death for us. Our death, if we're believers, will never be like his was. He took the brunt of hell that day. And for us, there's no sting, Paul says, in death. It's to be absent in the body, is to be present with the Lord. For us, a passing is an easy thing in terms of the spirit. But it wasn't so for Jesus because he loved us. And he did that, Paul says. He redeemed us so. What? From and to. Let's look at what we're redeemed from. We're redeemed from slavery to sin, verse 14. From all wickedness, verse 12. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. In his letter to the epistles, he says that apart from Christ, we are slaves to sin. What does it mean, slaves? I make my own choices, sure you do. But you make your choices consonant with your nature. And you're not consciously aware often of your nature, but you're still making your choices that way. And we've all inherited Adam's nature. We've all inherited a fallen sinful rebel heart, and God, by his spirit, because of his love for us in Christ, reaches down and changes our hearts. Now, there's a heart surgery. There's a heart surgery. Our hearts were stone, and he takes them out, Ezekiel says. And he puts in them a living, beating heart that resonates in step, in cadence, with a mighty, gracious, loving heart of God. And he writes his law upon our heart. And he says, he finishes the, uh, this little epistle by saying, we want to do what is right. We want to do it. Oh. Parents would love to have their kids grow up to want to do what's right. <laughs> that's our goal. That's, our, that's what God wants of us. He wants us to want to do what pleases him. Why? Out of love. If we love him, we want to do what pleases him. If we love him, it's because we admire who he is. We reverence him. We adore all his perfections. We adore all his excellencies. And we want to be like him in the ways that he's made us to image. He made man be his image bearer. He restores humankind in Christ to be that fulfilled image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Well, the scripture says that we're freed, redeemed from slavery to sin, and redeemed unto lives of purity as God's own people, verse 14, to purify for himself a people, notice, not peoples, a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. You know, you're part of a community. God didn't just save you as an atom out there floating in the cosmos, a moral automaton by yourself. He, he saved you into a family family of God. And the body of Christ is not 
especially when we meet, first and foremost, a court. The body of Christ, when we meet, is first and foremost the family of God, the people of God, the chosen ones of God, the body of Christ, the holy temple, that which He fills all in every way. Verse 12, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Eager, verse 14, to do what is good. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, we read these words. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Why? Because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. There's only two seeds. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. See, love for God ultimately affects how we relate to others. And we can't nurture bitterness and hatred toward others and still have love for God. They're not compatible. Now, I need us to understand something about verse 9. Verse 9 is not saying that if you made a profession of faith in Christ and then ever you displease the Lord in some way, you succumb to the enticement of the tempter, then it's all over. Just resign yourself. You're going to hell, boy or gal. Uh, that's not what that verse says. It's saying that you can't just complacently go on living in sin that the Holy Spirit's convicting you about. Okay? We all fall short every day in many ways. Most of them we're not even aware of yet. <laughs> Why? Well, because if the Lord showed me all my faults in, all at once, instantaneously, it would crush me. It would crush me. You too, whoever you are. But he doesn't. He's loving and he's teaching us step by step, line upon line, precept upon precept, in order to conform you, to encourage you, sometimes to chasten us when we need it, as he has done me in my life from time to time. And if you've known the Lord very long, you'll have to acknowledge he's done that with you too. Because he loves you. He's not going to leave you alone. He doesn't want to make you, okay, my soul's saved, I can live however I want. That's a pretty sure sign that you've never met the Lord in a saving way. Okay? And verse 9 of 1 John chapter 2 is referring to that. You can't just complacently continue on in what you know to be sin and say, it doesn't matter. I've got to get out of hell free card. I said the right words and signed the right pledge card for you know, the sinner's prayer, and I'm okay. That's a pretty good sign that you just went through the motions, mate. <laughs> and that your heart was never changed. Now, what about those of us who do know the Lord? Does it mean we don't struggle? Oh, no, we do struggle. mean we never fail? Of course we fall. Um, John was one of those who ran in Gethsemane. And he writes those letters. And he records what happened to Peter, and Peter ran too. And Peter denied the Lord three times, even after 
professing he would die first. And Peter had other mistakes later on, even after the resurrection. We won't go into them all. Uh, but Peter was also chosen of the Lord. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. The Lord used him in wonderful ways. Look at the first half of the book of Acts and look at the uh, two epistles that he gives us. And look at the prominent role he's given in the, in the gospel accounts themselves. God didn't throw Peter away. God's not going to throw you away. If you're his child, what he wants from you, pardon the Aussie-ism. We lived in Australia for a better part of the 1980s. But what God wants from you is to be fair dinkum with him. <laughs> Authentic. Authentic. And that you're honest with him as his spirit does business with your soul. Well, in these short verses, we are taught that uh, there is a price, that we live between the coming and coming again of Christ, that we're motivated by confident hope in our Lord's return and living in continual dependence upon God's grace, that there's a purpose, secondly, in our redemption, and that is that we're redeemed from slavery to sin and unto lives of purity as God's own special redeemed people. So we are, as believers in Christ, to live out God's grace in the present age. In the, uh, in the 17, late 1700s, there was a young man who was uh, impressed into the British Navy. In those days, to be impressed didn't mean that you were wowed. <laughs> it means you were uh, forcibly pushed into service in, into uh, the British King's Navy. They didn't have enough men. One of the reasons was they kept running through the ones they had. <laughs> uh, that's not a good thing. That's another story, but they were rough on him. And uh, so he was pressed into that, and eventually one of the ships he ended up serving on, British ships, was a slave ship. He served on that for a while, got into trouble, was sort of treated along with the slaves for a while, didn't like that, finally uh, got free of that, and, and uh, eventually, through different means, I won't go into the full story, he ended up a captain, a master of a ship, a slave ship. He continued that for a while, and God began to deal with his soul, and it started with a mighty storm. Nearly, the ship nearly foundered, and the young man, not quite so young now, uh, got ashore, and he said, well, God, you spared my life. I'm going to give up drinking and smoking, and I'm going to give up cursing, and I'm going to, and that's what he did, and he kept on trading in slaves until God really dealt with his heart, and he began to understand that Coming to God's not a matter of just giving up bad habits. By dint of personal um, determination, self-determination. No, he began to understand the grace of God and how wretched a soul he was before the Lord and in desperate need, just like those slaves. And he began to understand they too were made in the image of God and were his brothers.
And he began to work against slavery, to renounce it publicly, to preach against it, and, and his public popularity dissolved. The large number of well-to-do people that used to attend his church suddenly disappeared, and still he preached. And a young man came and asked for him to give him his advice, and his name was Wilbur. And young Wilbur said to this pastor, John, he said, uh, I, I, I've been going into politics, I've started a political career, but I, I really wonder if God may be calling me, perhaps into ministry like you. And John said, Wilbur, don't do that. Serve God where you are. And the pastor's name was John Newton. And the young man's name was Wilbur. Uh, was Wilberforce. William, rather, Wilberforce. And Wilberforce was a parliamentarian under whom Finally, in 1807, the slave trade was, was uh, banned in Britain. And in 1833, slavery in all the British dominions was ended long before the war between the states was required to do it in our country. And that converted slave trade captain wrote those precious words that you know so well and sing so often. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. Grace those fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear. The hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I've already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will bring me home. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun.